Sir Jeff Mulgan is Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy, and Social Innovation at University College London. Formerly, he was Chief Executive of Nesta and held government roles from 1997 to 2004, including as the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit Director and as Downing Street's Head of Policy. He is the founder or co-founder of many organizations from Demos to Action for Happiness and the author of many books. Jeff Mulgan, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, we're so excited to speak with you today because we've been reading your book, Another World is Possible, and it's so timely and exciting. I'm looking at your career and books and organizations you've founded and worked with on creative economies, smart cities, the circular economy, education, collective intelligence, so many of the big issues. You've really tackled them and, and improved those systems with many initiatives. There seems to be at the heart of all these projects a desire to improve our systems while still leaving space for the imagination and humanistic principles and for the individual to thrive and grow. So just tell us what drew you to some of these organizations and what started you on this path? I don't think I have a clear answer to that question at all. I've had a, a sort of weird mix of formative experiences. I was, as a teenager, very much an activist, as a political activist on all sorts of things from anti-racism to organizing teenagers in trade unions and strikes. Uh, so that was one thing. Then at a very early age, I encountered Buddhism completely by chance in Sri Lanka. I came across a remarkable Buddhist thinker and leader who told me half of what I thought I knew was wrong and gave me different ways of thinking about, I guess, our place in the world. And then at other times I got immersed in technology. I have a PhD in telecommunications. So I got into sort of networks of the internet and stuff. And then I've essentially spent half my time working kind of top down in governments with all the both strengths and weaknesses of seeing the world top down through the eyes of a government and half the time bottom up with communities or social enterprises or startups. And I guess to come back to your question through all of that, I've tried to see how can you combine the spark of creativity, of imagination, of not accepting things as they are, but to try and combine that with practical skills, practical methods, because imagination without practicality is sort of fun, but pretty useless. And practicality without imagination gets you stuck in the vices of the present. So yeah. That's where I got to where I am today, I suppose. And we like the optimism of your book because it's coming from someone who really knows what it's like to be in those rooms. And I think that you addressed this, that a lot of young people could sort of get down, not realizing how to activate their dreams and ambitions. And you discuss imagination is freedom. Could you tell us about the distinction between thin and thick freedoms? Well, maybe just to go back one step to what you said about pessimism and optimism. And in a way, I think this is one of the hardest things for any of us to get correct in our minds. It's very easy to look out on the world and be incredibly pessimistic. You switch on the news, you see uh, brutal bombing in Ukraine, you see that in the new phases of climate crisis, you see crazy people being elected to run 
government. So it's pretty easy to think, blimey, you know, the world's terrible. It's only going to get worse. What can I do? But then from another perspective, if you think of your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, it's almost quite good just to almost look back five, 10, 20, 30 generations. In their eyes, you would be living in the most extraordinarily lucky time ever. Uh, far and away the longest life expectancy, far and away the highest levels of prosperity, the best education, safety. You're much less likely to be killed or murdered than ever before. So it's kind of a paradox, this paradox of apparently dark, threatening times. And on the other hand, all sorts of things which actually work quite well uh, and have been uh, achieved by the hard work of people in the past. And I think it's really important we don't get trapped by the way kind of our social media feeds often accentuate all the negative things, all the drama. And they're very bad at actually telling us about the objective truths of, of progress, you know, which are definitely not complete, but substantial. Now, what you asked about sort of thick and thin in relation to imagination, in a way, this is kind of the, the key thing for my book. I think often... We need some spark of an idea which makes you look at the world in a slightly different way. I go back to the 15th century where one of the first feminist utopias was written. And there, even the idea of, you know, equality between men and women was a very unusual, a very minority uh, view. And the same is true of the utopias, feminist utopias written in the 16th and 17th and even 18th centuries. But then over the last, you know, 200 years, we've learned how to create new laws. We've learned uh, a whole sort of culture around feminism, a new way of looking at the world, relationships, etc. And so that what starts off as quite a thin imagination has become thick. It's become, you know, very strong, very embedded in institutions and worldviews and practices and battles, even if some of those battles still have a way to go. Another example, which I've spent some of my day-to-day -day actually on, is the idea of a circular economy. Now, that idea started taking shape about 40, 50 years ago. The idea of an economy where everything is circular, gets reused, the, you know, the, the various rare metals in this laptop I'm looking at now, the glass I'm drinking out of, the paper, that all of these don't have to be used and then buried in a big hole in the ground outside your city, but they can be reused and we can radically cut how much energy we use, how much matter we use in our economy. But that began as a, a thin idea, but it's slowly been worked out again in terms of all sorts of production processes, which can recycle glass efficiently, laws uh, in you know, Europe, we've had pretty strict laws requiring recycling of a higher and higher percentage of products. Our own kind of worldviews, our cultures, where some of the time we now begin to see it as unacceptable to have, let's say, fast fashion, where you throw away your clothes after wearing them twice, or people who buy a new iPhone every year. Now that's slowly becoming taboo. It's not taboo yet. I think it will be because we'll see it as just an appallingly wasteful way to live. And in all these different ways, what starts as quite a thin idea of a circular economy becomes a thick idea embedded in our lives, becomes kind of obvious and a common sense. And there are many, many other examples where, you know, over time, and these things do take quite a long time, 
what starts off as a little spark and insight becomes something really rich and, and complex and sophisticated. With the circular economy, I mean, and you've spoken and dealt with many people who are doing individual items that are circular. What I would love to see is, and maybe you're involved in some of these, but I would like to see some of these uh, living labs where you can see the whole circular economy and not just these little items, because it's, it's hard to conceptualize. We've never really seen what a circular economy is in practice. So I'd agree with that. And there have been big projects and gatherings. Japan, Finland, and other places have convened many of these over the years to try and flesh out that idea. And I don't think anyone has really articulated what a completely circular economy would look like. But in a sense, you have to start with some specifics, let's say clothing. At the moment, I think it's only about 1% of clothing is actually recycled. And that's even leaving aside fast fashion. So there's an enormous amount of work to be done to shift that over, to change habits of consumption, to change the systems about how clothing is gathered, reused, remodeled, almost certainly bringing in law. And France, for example, a, a former colleague of mine brought in a very powerful law trying to shift the whole clothing and fashion industry and also get things like microplastics out of clothing. But this takes a long, long time. The digital industries are appalling in this respect, incredibly wasteful in their promotion of ever more, uh, you know, waste and throwing stuff away and very non-circular in this sense. What I think we need, and this goes back to where, you know, what you said is many more people thinking through, well, actually, what would this whole economy look like? Let's picture 20, 30 years into the future. Imagine we really did become circular. You know, how would tax be organized in that world? Would we be taxing new stuff much more heavily relative to reused or maintained or recycled uh, stuff. You know, how would we be embedding this into children's upbringing? How would we be, let's say, changing our, almost our moral view of different kinds of waste? And I, this is one example. I think an economy where rich people own multiple houses or multiple cars, which they don't use, or they only use a tiny fraction of the time, that seems to me an incredibly wasteful way to run an economy. And yet 95% of economists think that's natural. That's just the way things are. So there's also examples where we need, you know, a, a shift of mindset. And finally, one, a, a topic which quite a lot of work is underway in Europe is thinking through the skills of a truly circular economy. If you really move towards much more repair and maintenance, of cars or laptops or clothing, you know, you have to reskill lots of people. You need new kind of institutions, new brokers, uh, as well as the new mindsets and the new technologies. And one of the things I've been trying to advocate that universities should be doing much more is what I call it exploratory social science is the detailed work on exactly these questions. How would a circular economy work or perhaps a, a, a world would radically reorganize care? for the elderly in uh, you know, a future where we can be fairly certain there will be many more old people, often with many more disabilities. What does that mean? Let's get some serious work done now, thinking through the dynamics, the implications. On the topic of education, John Bird describes the Young Foundation to have an ethos of doing with people rather than people being done to. 
So how does this value of inclusion and education help you when you influence policy and advise governmental teams? Yeah, so I think this is a, I hope, a big shift in how governments think about their roles, but also actually NGOs and companies too. So I think in the past, governments only did things to people, often quite nasty things like locking them up taking taxes from them, policing them. Then as democracy became more normal, at least in some of the world, they became better at doing things for people, providing them with uh, welfare payments or providing them with universal education or roads or hospitals. But I think the next stage of democracy is when alongside some things which have to be done to or for people, as you say, much more of government is done with people, giving them a say over how things are done and what they're done. Let me give just one example, which has come back, actually, we're hosting an event next week on this. So people with learning disabilities, teenagers with learning disabilities were very much thought to be passive, that they would be recipients of services provided by governments or social workers, and they should be grateful for what they got. About 15 years ago, we started trialing a model where they would actually have their own personal budgets, their own accounts, as it were, the government money would be under their control and they could have a say on how it was spent. You know, what services they got, what support, what activities. And many people said this would be quite impossible. You know, how on earth could you do it for, you know, kids with learning disabilities? And it turned out to be pretty straightforward. Not everyone wanted to use those freedoms. Some preferred to have stuff done for them by a, you know, a social worker, but many found it really empowering to be in control and through the exercise of control, then you learn it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the better you become at shaping your own life. And that spirit of doing things with people, I think is part of a mature democracy. It's increasingly becoming part of healthcare that if a, a doctor should be honest to the patient about what their chances and their choices are, the patient should be able to exercise some control. And of course, for whole communities, if you're, you know, rebuilding a city, you need to do that in a conversation with the citizens, not just doing things to them. And last week I was in Barcelona, which is one of the cities in Europe, which has been experimenting with new democratic platforms, theirs is called Decidim, which allows citizens and neighborhoods to play a much more active role in deciding what should happen uh, in terms of planning, but also spending public money. So that's a, a very live example of governing with, as well as to and for, which I hope again, becomes kind of common sense in the future to seem, well, well at some point it's, it's become obvious that's how you you should run a society because there's so much insight and intelligence amongst the people. You might as well use it for making decisions. The bureaucrats, the politicians don't necessarily know best. So work with the people, not just doing things to them. And what are the kind of regulations or measurements that are in place under this decidem? Because I, I don't know how it works, uh, just to ensure that it's not chaotic or the voice is being heard, but there's a sort of system in place. So that's a great question. In a way, I think that's been the big, the big lesson of several decades of trying to reinvent democracy. 
is if you just jump from having, let's say, an elected mayor to all the people making all the decisions all the time, perhaps on their phones, you'll get complete chaos. Uh, some people would say California is an example of that with its propositions, where the propositions are often completely contradictory, completely destructive, and they don't have much sort of coherence or, or thought to them. And actually, and I've been a bureaucrat much of my life, I think democracy only has worked in the last hundred years by allying itself with bureaucracy. It's a very unpopular view, but it's actually how, if you want to run your roads or your police or your healthcare, there's a lot of bureaucracy in that. Democracy steers it, gives it its directions, but those, the bureaucratic processes at their best turn it into everyday habits and practical actions and make them coherent. So in the case of Desidim, or its equivalent in uh, like Paris, which has a hundred million euro a year in its participatory budgeting or Iceland. Yes, members of the public can propose a, you know, an idea, let's say build a new park at the end of the streets a play area for the kids, but there then has to be a dialogue with the bureaucracy about, you know, how should it be done? How much will it cost? Is it going to annoy lots of other people? And it's through that kind of conversation which often takes a bit of time that you end up with something which will work and everyone will be happy with. Uh, and I think some of the democratic experiments have gone wrong by thinking that all you need is for the people to put up their hands or vote online and then you solve the problem. But nearly always life is more complicated than that. And it's the combination of the citizen input and some other process which may draw on science or may draw on, you know, knowledge of different kinds that gets you to a, a solution everyone wants. And again, not to pick on California, but the California one where anyone can propose a proposition, if it's voted through, it becomes law. That on its own is actually a really bad way to run a society. It leads to hysterical ups and downs rather than the sort of strategic approach which everyone benefits from. And California slightly ruined much of its education system by doing that. So you have a lot of insights into education and what works and how we can empower teachers and students and liberate the imagination. Uh, so just tell us about some of those insights. Well, where do I swear to start? I mean, I guess in, in relation to both schools and universities, one of the things I've been trying to work on is how alongside getting the basics right. And a school system does have to produce kids who are literate and numerate, uh, understand science. I'm in an engineering department now, so, you know, I care about these things. I think they can also provide space for very different ways of thinking. And some of the models which have really interested me and I've been involved in are ones where alongside the classic curriculum, you spend time in groups working on real life problem solving often outside the school and often with people outside the school. So again, uh, I've, I've just spent some of my day looking at air quality. That's a good example. In many cities around the world, air quality is a huge problem. We're looking at Delhi and Nairobi and London, actually, in, in a big project next week. Now that's a good topic for school children to work on. First of all, perhaps they use sensors and data tools to map. What actually are the patterns of air pollution, of particulates or ozone in the street where they live or where the school is and so on. 
And then you get them thinking through, okay, well, how would you reduce that? What are the options? And maybe they look at, you know, what could be done to change some of the, the traffic management. And maybe they talk to the local municipality about that. Or, or maybe they look at the buildings, which maybe their own school could be very energy inefficient and have lots of pollutants coming from it. And through a project like that, which often brings us together, maths and science, but also understanding economics and social dynamics, the psychology, you know, why is it that people sitting in a car in a traffic jam leave the engine on, which often creates appalling um, emissions? You know, how would you persuade them to turn their engine off until they could go? You know, little, little things like that give this sense of the world being malleable, being changeable. And from there, you can then get to a longer term imagination. So you get the kids thinking on, yeah, what could our town look like in 2030, 2040, 2050? Maybe we will have greatly reduced the role of cars altogether. We'll have, you know, more, more trams, more bicycle ways, more walkways, as well as perhaps some, you know, driverless cars in little avenues, taking people around with much lower emissions and less pollution. Now I find teenagers and younger children actually find this quite easy to do. It's quite a natural to imagine and see the world as very different. But depressingly, most school systems in most of the worlds crush that out. They don't value it. They don't, you know, they examine on other things. And one of the things we're doing here in the UK with some of the big foundations is trying to run much larger scale programs with, often with young people, essentially asking them to get much more stuck into designing the world they would like to live in. Uh, it's easier if you take a place like a town or a city rather than making it too abstract. Uh, and then things like the management of physical place spaces or transport, or how would you like to be caring for your parents or your grandparents in that world? It, it, it sparks a, a, a useful conversation. And for universities too, I believe in going beyond just the capstone projects to being much more embedded in the communities around them and helping those communities to solve, uh, solve their own problems. So for me, it's this both and it's not like you ditch learning maths, English, whatever it may be, but you learn these and apply them in part through working on the world as it is and the world as it could be. In chapter 11 of your book, Another World is Possible, you write on the future's importance in, quote, dominating the present. So what role does the youth, as you explain, play in holding the reins of progress? Well, in a way, it's kind of obvious. I mean, you will be around much longer than me, hopefully. But equally, I don't think I'd like to live in a world entirely run by young people. For me, the key in almost any of these, ex these kind of things is how do you get the right mix? You get a, the different perspectives, different social backgrounds, different age groups, uh, and so on. That said, I think there has been a weird shift in the last probably 20 years, certainly in the US, but also in other countries, where, as it were, the terms of trade have moved really badly against young people. There are many aspects of this. It's happened in the housing market where it's become impossible to afford to buy a, an apartment, a house until you're pretty old. 
is happen in the labor market where jobs for young people often have become less, much less well-paid. It's happened in politics. The last presidential election and maybe the next one in the US will be between two pretty old men, I mean, much older than, uh, you know, normally you might expect to be leading your country. And I think young people have also disempowered themselves by stopping voting, by becoming sort of bored by politics. And that's then reinforced this dynamic where politicians see more gain in offering policies to help the elderly than the young, because they say, oh, we don't even bother to vote. Why do anything for them? So we moved into this very strange paradox where, you know, if you're born today, you've got a reasonable life expectancy of 90, 100, 110. You know, multiple careers, multiple different lives. And yet the shaping of the future is more dominated by the relatively old than the relatively young. So I think we do need to change that. And that goes back to some of the things I was saying about what happens in schools, what happens in universities, but also in towns and communities. I think we need to, you know, remobilize young people, perhaps to switch a little bit more off, uh, TikTok and stuff like that. And, and in a way fight against this time compression, which social media have been so effective at where, you know, everything is reduced to 140 characters or whatever, or, a, you know, 15 seconds on Twitter to actually realize that the generation who are young today will be the longest lived generation in human history and need to start thinking like that need a complete sort of shift of mindset to prepare for, you know, the incredible boot of much longer lives, many more things, you know, opportunities, careers, et cetera, et cetera. And I see very little pressure coming from that into our political system, which as I say, is dominated by old people, your Senate, your president, but also in, you know, people like president Xi in China, Modi in India. Putin in Russia. Now these are, these are, the world is run by old men at the moment uh, and it shouldn't be. And yes, agreed. You mentioned this kind of TikTok generation and I think that we're all concerned and, and I know research in your projects about this, about how our minds or particularly young people's minds are being changed by the technologies that they use. What are your reflections on that and what kind of barriers do you suggest putting up? Well, I think we all have to learn different kinds of diet. So I think we all know what the diet means in food, that you are shaped by what you eat. And if you eat lousy stuff, you won't be unhealthy. You won't live as long, you'll be less happy. So on. in ancient Greek, there's a word dietetics, which is actually that notion of a diet, but applied to almost everything in your life. You know, what are your habits and, and your routines? I'm a great believer in digital technology. I think it does wonderful things for us, but I also think we need diets with digital. We need to be able to switch it off completely. And there used to be talk of having the digital Sabbath where you would, you know, at least once a week, switch everything off. I think it's very important to go on retreats or excursions for longer periods of time where you have no social media of any kind. I think we need to train our minds to be able to handle the short, the medium and the long term. And one of the uh, things when I learned this a little bit, I was very lucky when I was 17 and spent time in a, in a monastery learning meditation methods in a way, they are methods, which 
are all about resisting that kind of monkey mind. They should say the sort of uh, our tendency of our minds just to pick on things and be so easily distracted. You know, we, we're all like that, but Buddhism and other traditions essentially learn methods for resisting that, for achieving more focus and being able to avoid perpetual distraction of the things which don't actually make you happy, don't nourish you, but with a design to be curious for them. So in all these different ways, I, I guess we do need to cultivate a different kind of diet, a different kind of dietetics, uh, which helps us use the things which are useful for us, but not be dominated. In a way, this is, you know, this is true of every technology, like the car. In some ways, the car is a great thing. You know, I can travel and see my, my mother in a way I'd never have been able to do 150 years ago. But if we allow our cities to be dominated by cars and we get terrible pollution and lots of people killed and we live, spend our time in traffic jams, then, you know, we're being, the technology is dominating us, not the other way around. And that is definitely where we are with, we risk being with digital tech. We haven't quite found the right ways of harnessing them to our needs rather than letting them dominate us and manipulate us. It reminds me of your poem, Blown Glass. It makes me think about that. I, I don't know how much time you spend writing poetry, but obviously this is another outlet for escaping some of the technologies that might oppress us at times. Could I read it or? Yeah, you... sure. <laughs> Sorry. It just it seems so, it reminded me of this. I want to blow up glass of straight lines, neat corners and gentle curves. I weary of order and precision. I've had enough. I want a million shards and a billion fragments to fly through the air. I want to feel my blood brought out by random brutal blades. It all began an explosion and every life starts with a bang, a boom, and our worlds will end in violence too. Thank you for reading that so well. I haven't heard that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking it was a reflection on our, our tight relationship with machines, but I know maybe it has another meaning. That's not the literal meaning. It's got a few. One of the prompts for that was someone I know who bought an object, which was a sort of sculpture of glass and a tiny bit of TNT, which is the explosive we put inside the glass, uh, which you could at a certain point, press a button and it would blow up. Uh, I don't know if it actually would blow up, it, but it, it was meant to, I don't know what was quite in the mind of the artist, but they were trying to, I guess, make us think about violence, about fragility, about impermanence through this strange artwork with a sort of tiny bit of TNT and lots of glass. And that sort of weirdly prompted the poem we just read out, and I don't know all of what it means, but I liked it. Was it was such an unusual thing to do in an artwork to make it explosive, literally explosive? Well, that was curious. I, th I think it is beautiful the idea of making something so impermanent. My name is Vincent Cortese, and I'm a rising sophomore at the University of California, Berkeley, where I major in political science and English. What Jeff Mulgan has just said about technology and politics is a wake-up call to myself and many others to get off of our phones and start involving ourselves in political action. Social media is quite the double-edged sword. Growing up in a small town that was more homogenous, I found social media to be a tool that would bring diverse people and perspectives to my feed. It taught me a lot about the realities others live in. 
bringing me closer to them. On the other hand, it can become frivolous and promote the tribalism we see today. Social media, to put it poetically, pulls the eyes to polarize, to pulverize our sullen cries and emphasize some sunken lies. Adopting a digital diet, as Jeff Mulgan suggests, would allow us to wield this double-edged sword in its highest efficiency. We would reap the benefits of reaching different people and views and be able to steer clear of its divisionary and addictive disadvantages. It all starts with us putting the phone down and becoming attuned to the real world all around us. It may seem difficult, but Mulligan's hopeful perspective on our ability to progress puts a light on how simple something as lowering our screen time is even when it leads to the innumerable benefits, both for ourselves and others. We as young people have such potential to become a political force that brings the change that we desire. However, Gen Z's reputation to be the screenagers limits our ability to reach this potential. We have the responsibility to embrace technology for its power to be a tool and become critical and thereby act on the negative qualities that it presents to us. Jeff Mulgan's digital diet and our hopeful perspective on tomorrow will present to all of us the path to reach our full potential. And now, back to the interview. As we are going into these times where there's not a lot of precedence into what we're going into, the pandemic being the largest example, what effect does this have on how we imagine the future and thereby the present politically going into this time where most of us were spending a lot of time on our technology? So I think, I mean, the, the bigger question which you point to is that anyone who reflects on where we are in 2022 has to acknowledge that in the next 30, 40 years, lots of big transitions will be needed to uh, our way of life, our institutions, our politics, you name it. The most obvious ones come from climate and the need to adapt our lifestyles, our economy to low or zero carbon. We've also talked a bit about aging even everywhere our societies are aging pretty fast. And that means very different ways of organizing health and care. And then we will be surrounded by even more powerful technologies, artificial intelligence of all kinds in basically everything from our, you know, cars to our homes, to our phones, possibly implanted into our heads. And what's absolutely clear is that our institutions are not well designed for almost any of those tasks. They were designed often 50 years ago, 100, 200 years ago. Your democratic system was basically designed nearly 300 years ago. And it's not surprising that they're, they're not fit for purpose. They don't help us cope with these complex, layered, systemic transitions uh, and transformations. I mean, one of the good things of the pandemic is that it did remind us we are you know, one very interconnected world. And we are very dependent on complex systems of supply or food or care. And I think, I hope it's so prompting people in governments and elsewhere to think more systemically than perhaps they used to do in the past where they just thought of, yeah, business does this, or, you know, government provides this service. This interconnectedness is of a different order from ever before, but what we now need to do as I said earlier, is the hard work on designing those transitions, thinking them through. And that has to be a collective process. It can't just be done by a few experts in, in Washington or Beijing or London because it has 
so many layers. And that, that's almost the single most important thing I think universities have to do in the next 10 or 20 years is help us plan these massive transitions, but in ways which leave enough openness for experiment, for adaptation, for different places coming up with different uh, solutions. But as far as I can see, the main disciplines haven't yet really worked out the implications of this. Economics certainly hasn't, but nor has, I don't know, public administration and the tech people who think entirely in terms of selling a new product or a new service. They've got many of the tools which could be really useful for handling these transitions, but they're not really part of the conversation. Let me just give one example. I mean, I, I'm working here with a bunch of um, people on net zero for homes. What happens when you want all your homes in the city to be radically reducing their emissions? Now that requires different ways of organizing data, different ways of organizing algorithms, different ways of organizing the knowledge needed by electricians or plumbers or builders. And some of the methods of doing that sit within companies like Amazon or Google, but they're not providing, they're not using their capacity to help us with these fundamental transitions. All they think about is selling products. So we've got a big, a big sort of capability challenge that even when there is a lot of skill, a lot of know-how, it's often directed in the wrong places. And the, the, the chief data officer of Facebook once said, you know, it was a tragedy he thought that the best minds of his generation were basically focused on click-through advertising. And what we can be absolutely certain of is that there'll be no future historians who will say, thank God, so much brain power went into click-through advertising. They'll say, how incredible that the world put its best brains on the most trivial tasks and didn't put them on the things which really matter. Yeah, that, that is sad. And the amount of intelligence in those rooms. And so how do you think that we need to change our capitalist system to really provide for the health and welfare of people? That's <laughs> a big question. So I, I wrote a book about this about 10 years ago, which originated with writing a piece called After Capitalism. And I was very struck how many highly educated people literally couldn't picture a world after capitalism. They kind of assumed it was part of nature. And I pointed out they were exactly like people 250 years ago who thought monarchy was absolutely part of nature, was eternal. There was no way we could ever, you know, no society could work without a king or an emperor. And now, of course, that looks comic to see the world that way. But the way it changed isn't just through revolutions where you suddenly overthrow monarchy and get democracy, or you overthrow capitalism and suddenly you're in socialism. Much more often, change happens in more, more organic ways as the new forms take shape and grow and the old ones wane. So like in my country, Britain, we, we still have a queen, but steadily monarchy has become less and less powerful, less and less influential as we've grown up, you know, democracy, parliament, parties. All the, all the alternatives. And my vision of the future of capitalism and after capitalism is all the alternative ways of running things, which may be in a social economy, maybe in mutuals, maybe in co-ops, maybe in some of the, you know, maybe DAOs, new, new technology-based ways of organizing food, energy, 
our mobility, our education, that these over time grow and they squeeze out as it were the, the pure capitalist, uh, a part of capitalism where capital is all powerful and everything else serves capital and, and leave us with something different. And weirdly, again, the tech companies in some ways got a useful model. So in the past, it was kind of assumed that finance capital was the top of the hierarchy in capitalism. That was part of the model. But you look at what are the, the 10 biggest companies on the planet today, nine of them are based on data and knowledge. The banks have actually slipped way down the list, become much less powerful in some respects relative to the big digital giants. And of course, those digital giants are all organized in very traditional capitalist ways with stock prices and so on. But they are a reminder how fluid to some extent all of these systems are. What looks like an absolutely fixed hierarchy can change, can be over, overturned. And my hope is that again, in a, in a complex, messy way, we build up the alternatives, which give more space for human dignity and the planet and so on. But we, but don't expect a sort of that on, you know, July the 23rd, there'll be a revolution and suddenly we'll move from one system to another. That doesn't work well. It's never worked well to have very, very brutal ruptures between one system and another, but what can work well and has again and again is this most organic motion, which squeezes a sort of pure capitalism to the margins, just as has happened to monarchy and an empire in the last 200 years. So are you suggesting that heads of social media companies and other technological leaders are becoming some sort of monarchical leader or head of government in a sense? Could you just expand on that, please? No, I, all I was meaning is that within the economy, capital isn't as dominant as it might have looked 30, 40 years ago, because control over data mainly has become a great source of power. And I'm not saying they are the alternative to capitalism because of course they are capitalist, but what I think we need to look for is what are the things in the present, which can be steadily grown, which have a different ethos, a different kind of economy around them and which can displace the more malign side of capitalism. Now, the public sector is part of that. In most countries, even yours, the public sector is 30, 40% of GDP. France is 50%. Uh, and that obviously runs on a very different set of principles to capitalism. You know, often universal principles or principles of need. And that is already, as a sense, squeeze, you know, nowhere in the world is a pure capitalist society because it would be a disaster. And instead, as I say, a third or half, the economy is already run on very different principles. So I'm just talking about how we go further with that to create a more plural set of models rather than all being dominated by Wall Street capitalism. Another word is possible really gets us thinking about the big questions. I wish we could talk about all of them, but they're in the book, like rethinking globalization, relocalization, how we work with AI systems, of course, ecology, smart cities, and so many systems and how we could improve them. Uh, I, I wish we could discuss each of them. I did want to ask you one thing, and it's more on the arts end, and I know you discussed that also in the book. It's very wonderful to liberate our imaginations, but we all know people of talent and imagination who've perhaps crossed that border 
many times and find it hard to come back to this realistic, practical world. So what are some things that you use to ground you? I quite like there being lots of people who don't come back to the practical world. In a way, I think one of the reasons we need artists around us and poets and musicians and visionary filmmakers is to take us out of the, the, the present and the constraints of the practical. And as I say in the book, they play a hugely important role in helping us to see differently or to feel differently or to think differently, even if they don't necessarily tell us where our society is headed. I mean, I'm probably too practical a person. My background has been as a bureaucrat or running organizations. And I slightly envy people who can, you know, completely escape from it. The great thing about a complex society is there's space for lots of different kinds of people. There's space for wildly visionary poets and for accountants and actuaries and engineers, and they all have a slightly different outlook, but it's the combination of this huge diversity, which makes our societies work. But what we probably do need a bit more of are the bilingual people, the trilingual people who are as at ease spending a day, a week, a year designing how, I don't know, a criminal justice system could look in 50 years time, and then getting back to perhaps working in a real court or a real lawyer's office. And that, I say, being bilingual between the present and the future is for me a crucial skill. And I hope in a small way, my book and some of the stuff I work on helps people to be both and at the same time, rather than either the visionary poet or the Perhaps the accountant just looking at the only at the the facts of the present. Well, as you think about the future, education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? To know, preserve, and remember. <laughs> I would like them to feel agency above all, that they actually do have some power and some responsibility to shape the world, not just be an observer. I think reading history helps you get that. And it's kind of important to have a sense of the past and how we got here, because usually that is, you know, it can be depressing, but it can be empowering. And in a way then it's for each generation to ask that question, what from the present do we want to take forward into the future? Do we want to keep, it's not just our physical heritage and objects and, you know, beautiful culture, but also some ideas, some spirit you want to take forward into the future, but also to ask what we want to get rid of. This is why I think, you know, the whole argument about statues is actually a pretty healthy argument, which essentially is an argument, what from the past do we want to dispose of? Because it uh, is so out of sync with our values now to have in the center of our town, you know, a statue celebrating a bastard slave owner. <laughs> you know, that's a good argument to be having. But then there may be other things from the past we want to carry with us. We're not living in a, a year zero, a blank slate world. Much of what is most valuable for us in the future has to, by definition, come from the past. And again, what I'm trying to do, I guess, in the book is encourage that sense of a present, which links organically to a past, including a deep past, but also has a sense of how our actions now relate to a long future five, seven generations ahead. And I think if we could do that, you know, we actually live happier lives if we have that sense of, of our, our embeddedness in time in that sense. 
Yes, you've certainly done it through your various educational initiatives, showing people how they can really do things and not just be passive uh, observers in their own life and times. So thank you, Jeff Mulgan, for showing us that another world is possible through your commitment to improving systems for the betterment of society, sharing your insights into imagination and public policy so that we can protect our planet and future generations. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you all, I hope, for helping us avoid apocalypse and get to something better in the future, which I, I genuinely do believe is possible. It is, definitely. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Vincent Cortese with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Vincent Cortese. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Heggenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>